All right, and welcome, my friend, to the next episode here of the Red Delta Project podcast and live feed Q&A here on the RDP YouTube channel, helping you to be fit and live free by taking a fundamental approach to diet and exercise. I'm Matt Schifferly, and as always, this week's episode is sponsored by the entirety of the resources here available to you through the Red Delta Project. We're talking the entire Red Delta Project library, including some of my best books, micro-workouts, grind-style calisthenics, everything about building muscle and strength in the most direct way through calisthenics training is in those titles. And I get asked a lot of times when people are like, you've got all these books, what do I do to start out? And the answer is that you can literally start out anywhere, but I recommend starting off with either grind-style calisthenics if you're truly focusing on building muscle and strength, or my book, Smart Bodyweight Training, if you're brand new to calisthenics training. And that gives you my whole overview approach of the way I approach calisthenics because building muscle with bodyweight training is really fundamentally no different than building it with weights. The programming's the same, the strategy are the same, the sets and reps are the same, everything is the same except for fundamentally how you apply the resistance, which is of course how you are adjusting your technique instead of adjusting your weight. But nevertheless, how you adjust your technique is how you add weight to the exercises. <clears throat> and you may notice I've got a little bit of catch in my voice right now. If it sounds a little bit different from the audio this week, that's because I'm recording through the microphone in my laptop right now instead of my usual lavalier microphone, because as I'm kind of like grunting and coughing and stuff like that, I don't want to be coughing in your ear. That would be rude of me. And honestly, this was kind of a game day decision if I was even going to be able to host today's podcast. I've been fighting this cold all week long. So we're going to see what we can get with this. I got my water and a little bit of something I can drink, but we'll see how my voice and my throat can hold up. This may be a bit of a short episode, which is why I wanted to make it an Ask Me Anything episode. We are using this as Ask Me Anything because I know a lot of times I have a topic and a particular point or a lesson that I want to share in each of these episodes, but inevitably you guys ask such great questions and I want to focus on helping you with what you come here and ask me with. So I didn't want to dilute it with the stuff that I wanted to do. I wanted to talk about the things that you want me to talk about. So we already got some folks coming on in. Wasatch Wizard, good to see you. Leo, always good to see you as well. And uh, Owen saying audio sounds okay. Thank you very much, folks. It's it's crazy. You know, this is just a, a standard MacBook Pro that I'm recording off of, uh, three directional microphones. It's almost like five years old now. It's by no means a new computer. And uh, years ago, when I was starting these uh, podcasts, I had all these different microphones that I was setting up and I was doing tests on which one had some of the best audio quality. And eventually I got to the point where I was, I was working with a friend. And I was like, boy, you know, the control audio sounds almost just the best out of everything. What's the control audio? I was like, that's just the standard mic on the computer, dude. That's like nothing. And I was like, dear Lord, I've spent all this money on great microphones and they're all good, but the mic in these uh, MacBooks are actually pretty darn good. So fantastic. Let's get to some of these questions right off the bat here. Furkan saying, how do I stop the knee clicking sounds while doing deep squats? Very good. So there's something to understand about these joint sounds that we sometimes hear. We hear in the shoulders, hips, knees sometimes, sometimes in the ankles of the wrists. And a lot of times when you inquire about this on the internet, you'll get the response that as long as there's no pain associated with it, like it doesn't hurt, you're probably fine to keep doing it. However, one thing that I've learned is that the reason why the popping is happening is because of a slight misalignment in the application of muscle tension throughout the body. And while it may be okay right now, if there's no pain, that misalignment is a sign that something is still off and it can potentially grow into something that could cause issues down the line. So it is smart of you 
to be paying attention to that clicking. And so the, what usually is going on with this, especially the deep squats, is something that's probably disengaging on the way down. I would put money on it being glutes and hamstrings, could be your calf as well, maybe quad, although probably not. So pay attention to your squat. Are you coming down and then just kind of sitting and dropping into that bottom position? Are you still pulling into your squat? Are you pulling your glutes close to your ankles? Are you keeping your glutes and hamstrings engaged in the deep squat? And I know a lot of people will say, well, how do I do that? Well, you literally just practice just that. Get into a deep squat or squat down onto a really low step or a surface, and then you practice clenching those muscles in that position. That should help to rebalance the forces going through that knee and take care of that clicking sound for you. Chris is coming on asking, uh, how many money are you making through YouTube AdSense? Uh, cat orange whistling, so forth. Not as much as you think. It varies, uh, but it's, it, boy, it used to be a lot more back in the day. Uh, I don't, I never really paid too much about the algorithms and things like that. But back when I had half as many subscribers as I do now, I was making 20% more. So, you know, subscribers, I know they say that's kind of a, an ego metric, like nobody ever cares too much about subscription numbers, so to speak. It doesn't really have that much about watch time and stuff. So it's usually, uh, you know, about uh, maybe low 500s a month or so, if that, if that. It's it's gone steadily down over the years, um, largely because I don't do YouTube to make money. I mean, it's a, enough that it would pay for, like I said, like, you know, if I go out for dinner a couple times a month or something like that, but it's not a reliable or um, effective, reliable in income stream for me uh, these days. Uh, it's enough that it's worth still making what I can make. Uh, but you may notice that some of the videos that I've posted over the past couple of months, especially if they're much shorter videos, I'm like, eh, you know, I don't even click on the ads too much anymore. It's like, it's just not worth it. Uh, you know, I, most of the videos that I know are not going to get a lot of reviews, but it's information for those who are looking for it. Like I'm doing a lot more review videos now. I want to get more into the product review uh, space of things just because it's a lot of fun for me to do. And, you know, I can make money off of affiliate marketing or referrals and things like that. But some of the videos are not very long and it's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not even going to bother with it. It's just not worth it. So the bottom line is not much, but enough to still kind of make it worthwhile. But yeah, not, not a whole lot. New Moon saying, hey, coach, I got arthritis and flexibility in my toes. Ouch. Would you have any recommendation to get around that for your latest quad exercises and even push-ups? That's something I struggle with myself. I don't think it's arthritis. When I was 15, I had a Taekwondo injury to my big toe on my right foot. And as a result, my big toe on my right foot does not bend back very far at all. And it's been causing me a lot of issues, particularly with uh, you know lunges and things like that. And for the most part, I just avoid things that force my toe back. Uh, if I'm in a handstand, for example, and I come down, I always come down on my left foot because if I'm smashing that right toe, into the ground, it, it ends up hurting, you know, if I do too much of that sort of thing. Uh, so generally, I would say use what range of motion you can with things like calf raises just to kind of get some mobility and movement in there. I know that can be kind of a good way to go about it with arthritis, but you may have an inherent limitation there um, that may just make some things difficult. I know you may be referencing the sissy squat that I've been talking about a lot later lately. For me personally, I love the sissy squat, but it does some, certainly compromise it. So I have to do, when I'm doing sissy squats, I have to wear shoes and I have to be on a padded surface. And that just gives me a little bit more motion 
because of the softness of the sole of the shoe and the mat rather than being able to bend my toe backwards. So I, I learned to work around that sort of thing. But like I said, it is an inherent limitation uh, and you may have that that you just got to work around. It kind of sucks, but that's what it is. But I would say padding uh, may be your best way to go about it uh, in that regard. FC is saying, do you think burpees at a steady pace is a good substitute for low intensity cardio on rainy days? Mm, basically, no. It's not so much what the burpee is, but when we're talking about low intensity cardio, uh, I mean, if you're like, I just want to get the heart rate up. I want to just boost the energy level. I've been watching a Netflix marathon for the past three hours. I want to just kind of wake things up. Yeah, sure. Go for it. But the bottom line, remember, folks, is that especially when it comes to burning a lot of calories and fat and building up endurance and stuff like that, you there's just no substitute for time. And one of the biggest reasons for low intensity cardio is the fact that you can do it for very long periods of time. I can get on a bicycle and ride for eight hours straight. I've done it before. It's not fun, but I've done it. You're not going to do burpees for an hour. I mean, for even five minutes is a real long slog. Burpees are more for high intensity stuff. It's not low intensity. I would say if you're indoors, raining sort of thing, one, you know, could you still just go outside? you know, for a uh, jog or running or uh, walking and stuff like that. As they say in the mountain biking world, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad equipment or bad gear. You know, so I have a very good rain jacket. I have good shoes, waterproof shoes and things like that. I've certainly not been adverse to going for a bike ride or going hiking or something in the rain. Uh, granted, you've got to be mindful of the weather, especially out here in Colorado. If it's a downright thunderstorm, it can be dangerous. But uh, I would say, you know, if it's raining outside and you're just like, eh, I don't want to go outside, it may behoove you still to get outside as opposed to finding some sort of a substitute indoors if you don't have some sort of cardio equipment like a treadmill or an exercise bike. But yeah, the burpees are going to be more for long term uh, or short uh, duration, high intensity stuff uh, instead of the, uh, the, you know, substitute for running or jogging or stuff. Ali saying, how close should your feet be during push-ups? Well, it kind of depends on the push-up, and it kind of depends on the amount of strength and stability you have in your shoulder joints, particularly your scapular stability. But the golden rule of thumb is together. Uh, keeping your feet together, I know in combat conditioning, Paul Wade talks about you get your feet together, you keep them together, and that's the way you always do it. A little dogmatic in my book, you know, but he has a good point. You know, a lot of times you see things on social media and stuff, people doing one-arm push-ups and stuff like that, and their legs are spread out super, super wide. Um, that usually is an indication of a weakness in the core and the hips. And it, yeah, it can be done, but it's like bike racing with your training wheels on. You know, I've seen people do one-arm push-ups with their feet shoulder width apart. You know, you, you've got the Cobra push-up where you're twisting a little bit to accommodate some of that torquing uh, with the feet together for one-arm push-ups and stuff that I talk in my book, um, Bodyweight Training for martial arts. So I would say try to make an effort to keep your feet as close together as possible for especially advanced progressions and work to keep them and get them closer together. Don't just have them like spread super wide apart like you're in a split and be like, yeah, that's just the way it's done. It's like fight against that. Prevent that as much as you can. If you have it, work hard to kind of get around it. Hassan is saying, hello, coach. I want to get my father, 57 year old into training. What should I focus on teaching him? Movement, what variations or progressions, any other things to care about warming up or flexibility. It's always super, super hard to get someone else interested in physical training, especially loved ones. The closer they are to you, the harder it's going to get them to do 
anything. Trust me, I've been in this game for 20 years. I have not been able to make any headway on getting my friends and family to get into fitness whatsoever, uh, unless they came to me and they already were inherently interested in it. So my experience has generally been to lead by example. So you set a good, strong example. Um, make sure that you're making it well known that you're training or you have, there's examples of people out there who are their age, because usually, especially when we get older, we start telling ourselves a story about how, oh, it's because I'm getting older. Oh, that's, I feel this way because I'm over 50 and stuff like that. So you want to just kind of, you know, dangle the carrot or the bait in front of them a little bit to let them know that change is possible. But overall, you kind of let need to let them come to you. Uh, it's not something you're going to be able to force. And the more you push, the more you're going to push them away from it sort of thing. So look for your moments of opportunity as well. If they come to you and they're like, oh, my back is always really getting bad. And, you know, my legs feel so tired when we were, you know, hanging out the other day and stuff like that. You're like, well, you know, I can help with that a little bit and make sure they understand that it does not take much to get the ball rolling. When someone is starting off from zero, you want to get the low hanging fruit and make sure that they understand that there are easy wins. So if they can just simply get up and down out of a chair 10 times, you know, that can be a, a good way to start. I've started people off where they're just simply standing with their feet close together. We we're talking about that with pushups. Just keep your feet close together for stability and balance. You know, think of things that they can easily do on the spur of the moment throughout their day and see if they can do that. Because once they start to experience benefit, then they can get the ball rolling. But you've got to start off super light and easy for them to just get interested in it in the first place. And that's your number one goal is to just get them into the idea that it's possible to begin with. David Baker saying, hey Matt, I've incorporated more crawling and isometrics into decreasing the amount of traditional exercises. But my numbers have went up on the traditional exercises. Have you seen experience that before? Oh yeah, all the time. So functional carryover, my friends, is a weird thing because you'll hear of people doing one discipline and it improves the other discipline. Happens all the time. People get into calisthenics and their numbers on the weights go up. People get into kettlebells and their weights go up. Usually it's quantified by weights or whatever. People who, you know, get into high intensity training, their runs get faster. People who do crawling and they get, <clears throat> you know, better in their numbers and everything. Happens all the time. But it also doesn't happen all the time where people will get better at calisthenics and it doesn't do anything for weights. I think Al Cavadlo did something the other day, uh, not the other day, but several months ago where he posted about how he was getting more into kettlebell pressing. And he's like, it did nothing for his handstands. He's like, handstands didn't improve one, but one bit. And it's always down to if the method that you're using in question is kind of addressing some sort of an imbalance or a weakness that you didn't know about, or if you're able to progress that easier for who knows what reason. It could be a shoulder stability thing. It could be a base of strength. It could be an activation. There could be a number of things that you're getting from the crawling that you weren't getting from your traditional exercises. Who knows? And this is why we want to have some degree of diversity in our approaches, because the more narrow our approaches are, the greater the chances are that we've got some of those uh, imbalances and hindrances lingering in. And it doesn't mean you need to do everything under the sun. But it does mean that you should dabble with several disciplines, at least a little bit here and there. And uh, last but not least, I would bet money it's more due to the isometrics than the crawl. Isometrics are the most direct and efficient means of strength training in existence. So that alone, I would say, is probably the greatest carryover to any form of strength training you're ever going to experience.
So that's my two cents there. And shameless plug, of course, my book on isometric training. If people, you guys want to learn more about why isometrics work so well for strength training, the link is down below there as well. And I've got a whole playlist on the RDP YouTube channel all about isometric training. Dave's coming on saying, hey, Matt, for rear elevated split squats, do you like to let the rear foot slide back or keep it closed like a shrimp squat style? Good to catch alive again. Thank you very much, Dave. It depends on the tools you're using. So if you're using your foot suspended, it's elevated in like a suspension strap, you certainly have the ability to get the foot to go backwards. But as I coach clients all the time, don't reach back with that foot. Ultimately, you kind of want that foot, that knee to come fairly like straight down rather than reaching backwards too much. Uh, one, because it's going to compromise your mobility. Two, generally when people slide the foot back, their weight slides back. And we want to keep the weight on that front foot as much as possible. So I generally tell people, think of the rear elevated split squat of any variation, kind of like a single leg squat with assistance from the back leg. So you're trying to make it as much of a single leg squat as you possibly can, as little weight and as little movement and as little emphasis as possible from that back leg. It's just there for stability support because the less you use that back leg, the more effective the exercise is going to be. Jonathan Husband saying, hey, Matt, uh, what do you think about bulking then cutting? Is it a fast way to grow muscle? How long do muscles actually take to grow? A lot longer than we think. That's the problem with it. I'm not a big fan of bulking and cutting because it's kind of like a catch-22. You know, people cut because they bulk and then they bulk because they cut kind of thing. But, you know, when you're talking about bulking and cutting, you're talking about a holdover from the bodybuilding uh, strategies. And if you look at the bulk of, you know, pun intended, uh, you look at a lot of the information about how the average person should get in shape. Most of the information out there is from the sport of bodybuilding. I always imagine we should go to alternate universes out there where fitness cultures are based on baseball and everybody in the gym is like swinging a bat for repetitions, you know, or other, you know, uh, gym out there. It's like, it's based on swimming and everybody's about swimming and everybody's about water polo and stuff. Bodybuilding is a sport. It is a game as all sports are. It is not fitness, but unfortunately our fitness culture is based largely on it. So a lot of the rules and strategies from bodybuilding get carried over into uh, the, the fitness aspect. Now you may want to be more of a bodybuilder. I'm guessing, I'm assuming here, but the bottom line is bulking and cutting is not going to be helping 99.9% .9 of the population. A lot of times when bulking and cutting is applied in studies, all it does is it makes people fatter and then they lose the fat. That's all it does. You want to make sure that you're getting plenty of food for sure when you're building muscle. But bottom line, if you're getting fatter, you're eating too much, period. So by all means, eat well, eat good food, eat plenty of food, eat lots of food. But if you are putting on enough fat, that requires cutting, you're just simply eating too much. And it's a very wasteful way to go about it because it costs you money and time and effort to put on body fat in a bulk and also costs you a lot to take it off. And a lot of times, most people who bulk and cut, if they can even do it successfully at all, just end up right back where they started. And they're like, oh, I've got the same body. It's like, yeah, that's because muscle, aside from newbie gains, or unless you have a genetic predisposition for building muscle, which most people don't. You know, a lot of people are like, I'm a hard gainer. I'm a hard gainer. It's like, yeah, you and 99% of the population building muscle is really, really freaking hard people. It's extremely hard. You know, if you gave me a thousand people, I would bet every single one of them, you're probably never going to build more than 10 pounds of muscle. And I'll take that bet every day. 
because it's just that hard. Most people will never be able to do it. It takes too much work. It takes too much time and it takes too much patience. And most people just don't have it. So a lot of times people will turn to bulking and cutting because they're impatient. They just want the scale to go up. They just want to feel bigger. And it is because they got fatter. And then they're like, crap, now I want to look good naked for the beach or my honeymoon or whatever. So then they diet off the fat, but then they feel like they're getting skinny because their quote gains are being lost. You didn't have it to begin with. You just got fatter. So that's why I say, don't bother with it. Eat big, eat plenty, eat lots of good food and train your ass off in the gym and let the gains come as they may. But don't worry about the bulking and cutting. It's a it's a losing proposition for most people, in my opinion. Furkan saying, can Mike Metzer's training style be applied to calisthenics? Of course, you can apply any training style to calisthenics. Because remember that calisthenics is fundamentally just another form of weightlifting. There's nothing different about it. And that's a big thing that people don't realize. And a big mistake that they make is that when they change disciplines, they change the programming style. And then they get different results. And they thought they got different results because they use that different type of training methodology or that different discipline had nothing to do with the discipline. It had everything to do with their programming was different. So yeah, you can certainly apply what, and you should be able to do this. If you know calisthenics well enough, and especially with grind style calisthenics, because we use a plethora of devices, we've got weighted calisthenics, we've got suspension calisthenics, I've got different books for every single one of those disciplines. If you want to learn more about them in much greater detail, we've got progressive calisthenics. You should be able to take any strength training program of any type, and be able to apply it directly with calisthenics. It's fundamentally exactly the same thing. Yakura is saying, hey Matt, how would you implement skill work on top of push-pull squat program? Assuming it's one skill at a time. Uh, love is stubble though. Thank you very much. It makes you look 10 years younger. I get that it makes me look older, but damn it. I don't want to look older or younger. I want to look sexier. <laughs> Nobody ever says that about me. Oh, well, I tried. But anyway, skill work. Yes, yeah, so think of it this way fundamentally skill and strength are the same thing in my grind style calisthenics program okay we apply strength work and skill work at the beginning of pro of a uh, workout why because you need to be as fresh as possible to be able to do it strength is a skill skills are strength so you want to do it relatively fresh and you want to do it in such a way that you're not burning your muscle out so when i give people things like handstands or front levers or planches and things like that. When I'm coaching them, I'm like, do not take this to failure. I want you to stay plenty fresh for this. So that way you're not burning out the muscle so you can get more practice, right? If you burn yourself out on one or two sets of front levers, then you're going to get like one or two decent front levers. And then it's just going to, it's going to tank real quick and you're not going to get much practice at it. Strength training, exactly the same thing. You know, you want to go hard, you want to go heavy, but do not go to failure. Save several reps in the tank so you can practice it for multiple sets. How many sets? Well, it's just how much energy you've got and time you have for that. So when we're talking about skill work and strength work in a push-pull squat program, we're talking about a bit of a competing bias here. So what I would do is just superset them. So let's say you've got uh, you know, a, a lever that you're working on and you uh, want to also have strength, dynamic work. So I would do it on non, you know, competing days. So if like, I want to work my front lever and I'm also working squats. Okay, good. Put those two together because you can work your front lever, really get your back working hard, but it's not going to detract too much from heavy squat work and vice versa. If you're working on 
planches, for example. Okay, that might not be something to do on your push day, but it could work very well, for example, on your pull day. Don't make it too competing. And I would superset the two. So work the skill set, work the strength set, work the skill set, work the strength set. That way they're not competing with each other and you're giving a little bit more time to rest in between. And then once you feel like your performance is starting to go down on either of them, then it's time to move into finishers if you want to do that sort of thing. So that's how I would approach that. Very, very good, insightful question. That's why I love doing these Q&As with you folks. You always have such amazing questions, things I'd never really think about it. Let's see if I've got some more. And I always apologize if I miss anybody here. I do try to get to everybody. Cristobal saying, what's your opinion on doing calisthenics if you're heavy, 230 pounds or more? I love it. I love it. And I think that's a damn shame that a lot of people will avoid calisthenics training because they're heavy. I'm like, why? That makes it all the better. Because if you think about it, generally weight is a liability in most cases when people consider things like running, cycling, general health and well-being. You know, you got to get lighter, got to get lighter. The heavier you are, the better you are. Now, granted, again, I use calisthenics as a form of strength and conditioning. You know, I basically want my muscles screaming bloody murder when I'm doing my calisthenics. I don't want to be able to do 100 muscle ups. I don't want to be able to do, you know, a planche for five minutes or anything like that. Now, if you're a calisthenics, quote, athlete, and you're in the sport of calisthenics, which is totally different than fitness, then it's going to be a different story because the bigger and the heavier you are, the harder it's going to be to be a, you know, calisthenics, quote, unquote, athlete in a competitive field. Not, it's not impossible, but it's just harder. Right. I weigh 190 some odd pounds as a bike racer. That might as well be the weight of an elephant. You know, I am 5'10, 190 pounds. That makes me practically morbidly obese in the bike racing world. So if I wanted to be a competitive biker, I'd need to lose a lot of weight. Like when I was in college and I weighed 150, but I don't use biking for competitive competition anymore. I use it for fitness, in which case my weight is making my ass work a lot harder when I'm going up Lookout Mountain which is entirely what I'm after. So when you're bigger and heavier in calisthenics training and you just want to build muscle and strength, it's huge benefit, huge, because you have more weight to work with. And that's only going to help you to get stronger. Just keep in mind that you want to make sure you understand uh, progressive calisthenics theory so you can adjust the resistance according to your strength level with your current body weight. Zed Thacker saying, hey, Matt, uh, how do I realize if I'm doing junk volume? Oh, such a good question. So here's the thing is when we are doing sets or exercises, we want to feel like we are seriously sending some sort of a strong stimulus through our muscles. That something is happening. You should get done with every set and you're like, I made something happen there. That, that was different than the set before. Or holy smokes, my muscles really got hit to a good degree. Like I improved the technique or all oh, that's getting better. Or, I feel stronger or whatever. You should be teaching your muscles how to perform. That's ultimately what training is. When we get into junk volume, that's when we're just doing work for the sake of doing work, right? We're just, oh, I got two more sets. All right, let's just get through it. And you're just counting them through and you're not really paying attention to technique and you're just doing it as if it's a chore. That's going to be junk volume. Now, my approach and strategy, again, in grind style calisthenics is you do the techniques and the exercise to the very best of your ability. Because fundamentally, progression is about doing things better over time. So every set I do, I'm trying to do it better, better technique, more reps, more weight distribution, better range of motion, better tension control, trying to do it better, right? So that's the focal point that I have when I'm training. 
Now, if I'm just going through the motions, I'm like, well, I'm doing 100 push-ups. Why? Because it says to do 100 push-ups on my workout log. Chances are that's going to be more of a junk volume thing. And junk volume does not come from doing a lot of volume. You can have junk volume on number one set. If you're just going through the motions, and you're not really focused, and you're not putting a lot into it, it's probably junk volume. And if you've been doing push-ups for the past 10 days, and you're getting down for day 11, and you're like, all right, let's get this over with. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You're at junk volume already. You've been at junk volume for several days. You want to be doing the exercise with clear intent and purpose. And if you don't, don't do it. I would say just, you know, go and do something else. The other thing, too, is if you're really getting after your training hard, then there should be a very noticeable like wall that you're hitting where you're doing one-handed pull-ups on the pull-up bar behind me. And after a few sets, you're just like, nope, I got nothing left in the tank. Good. You're done. Because my adaptive training styles that I use don't give prescribed sets that you should do. You do as many as you can do with good technique and intensity and focus. Now, if you're coming after that with a lot, you should burn out relatively soon. It shouldn't be something like, I got 12 sets on pull-ups today. I'm like, dear Lord, why don't you make it harder on yourself? Why didn't you put more into the sets, you know, coming after it with more? But if you're really focused, you're getting like three, four, five, maybe six sets, and then you should hit a noticeable wall where you're like, wow, things are really starting to tank. Like, okay, good. You're done. At that point, I don't care if the program says do three more sets. You're done. You know, and that way you're not eating into your recovery and doing the junk volume. Sammy Leal saying, hey, man, what do you think about circuits for hypertrophy, lunges, dips, pull-ups? four rounds, three times a week. I like circuits. Just make sure that you're not making it so hard and fast that the cardio becomes a limiting factor. If you're looking to build muscle, you want to challenge the work capacity of the muscle. So how hard can it contract and how many times you can do it? But if you're jumping up on that pull-up bar and you're really out of breath and you're just totally a Metcon and you get like five reps and, oh God, I'm so exhausted kind of thing, your muscular work capacity is not really being that challenged. Now, of course, you can build muscle doing damn near anything if you're challenging the work capacity and bringing it up. But as you build up that work capacity, it's going to be more challenging to do so if you're also challenging other things like cardio, mental challenge and stamina, stability, tension control, all those skill work and stuff like that. Again, that's why with grind style calisthenics, we do the simple boring exercises. Why? Because it's really easy to challenge your uh, muscular work capacity with that. gives you the greatest chance of improving your hypertrophy. So I like circuits. They're great for saving time and stuff like that. Just, you know, kind of manage that heart rate a little bit, you know, keep, keep things under, under wraps. But as far as keeping things very efficient, oh yeah, fantastic. Great, great. Uh, as long as you can get the work in. Jethro saying, hey Matt, what are your thoughts on optimum protein intake? There's so many different takes out there for doctors say you don't need uh, any supplemental protein. Others swear by it. Yeah. And there's good reason for that. Excuse me, I get some more water. Because nutritional guidelines of, from any source are an estimated guess at best. Some of them can be a little bit more uh, accurate, like especially if you're coming from a very reputable source like uh, you know examine.com or Stronger by Science or something like that. They've got their, um, their app, I'm forgetting what it's called, something factor, max factor app or something like that. I mean, that's much more accurate stuff that you can really rely on. Um, but yeah, any number that you get is going to be a general ball parkian kind of thing. And personally for me, I just don't go by numbers because 
being able to measure and count grams and know what you're taking and knowing what you, to me, it's just a royal big pain in the neck. That's an estimated guess at best. So that's why I generally go with uh, basic guidelines. Number one is again, make sure you're getting several uh, square meals a day. I know some people like one square meal, two square meals, whatever. I personally will eat four or five times a day. That's just the way I like to do things. Um, I'll usually have two breakfasts. You know, I, I joke them on the Hobbit diet, you know, first breakfast, second breakfast. So make sure you're getting a good protein source at each meal. That's rule number one. It's probably more important to get just protein throughout the day rather than, in, you know, how much you're getting. Uh, second is if you feel like you can stand more protein, like you want more or you might be better off with it. Yeah, then just get it, whatever. Remember that supplementation doesn't do anything that food doesn't do. It's just getting more of whatever that is. Uh, it's just sometimes for some people a little bit more of a convenient way to go about it. Now, I personally eat, prefer regular food just because I feel like you're just going to get more benefit from actual food. Supplements are highly processed foods. Not that I have anything against processed foods, but just know it for what it is. Uh, it's not really all that beneficial versus if you get like, you know, an egg salad sandwich, there's a hell of a lot more in that egg salad sandwich than just protein. So you're getting more benefit from it. So that's my general recommendation. Protein at each meal should be a good serving size. You should just look at a meal and be like, there's some good protein there. And then if you're like, should I get more? Well, then just get more and then see if that does anything. Because again, if it matters, it should matter. If you get a good deal more protein in your uh, daily uh, habits and you're like, I don't really notice a difference, well, then it probably isn't mattering very much and you don't need to worry about it. You probably already have yourself covered. Cristobal is saying, what do you think about 531 Jim Wendler's program, but for weighted calisthenics? Yeah, fine. Again, you can apply any program to calisthenics. Anything that's out there, you should be able to say, no problem. I can um, match it set for set and rep for rep with any other discipline. The discipline you do really isn't that important. It's much, much more important is the programming. So programming that has a good track record, like 531, is probably a good way to apply it. And then you just simply finagle with the resistance and the adjustment of whatever discipline you're using, bands, kettlebells, logs, you know, lift body weight, progressive calisthenics, weighted calisthenics, it all works. SD Snubble, Snubble, I'm totally butchering that, pardon me, but saying, is there a better approach in how to strengthen tendons? High rep, rep uh, heavy, uh, few reps, uh, combining, yada, yada. Uh, GMB Fitness had a great article that they just put out. If you're not subscribed to their newsletter, you darn well should be because they address these sorts of things all the time. And they basically echoed the thing that I've always said, which is that don't worry about tendon strength. Basically, tendon strength, the, the strength of your tendons should be incredibly high out of the gate because the nature of tendon strength is that they're just going to be way stronger than your muscles anyway. If you have stress in a tendon, that means muscle is not doing its job somewhere. So if you're doing something like, oh, the tendons in my wrist hurt, the tendons in my elbow hurt or something, that means you're doing something wrong in your technique. And remember, 90% of good technique is invisible to the naked eye. It's all in how you feel the muscles are working. So you're not engaging muscle appropriately somewhere, and the stress is going into your joint rather than through your joint. Uh, so oftentimes when people are asking me about tendon strength, they're experiencing pain somewhere, they assume it has uh, something to do with weak tendons. It's nothing to do with the weakness of the tendon. If, if it did, then you're in serious trouble because that tendon's about to tear or snap. That means there's damage to the tendon that probably needs surgery. So when you're looking at, I need to strengthen tendons, 
generally we never need to worry about strengthening tendons. Uh, it's much more about what muscles are not engaging if I'm feeling some stress in those areas. Uh, otherwise, the tendons will always be pretty much as plenty strong as they ever need to be. That's uh, not usually something we need to actually strengthen. Leroy the man, it's good to see you again. Hey, Matt, I think uh, the overlook underrated weighted calisthenics exercise for legs are dip belt squat and plate weighted uh, vest. Good morning. Unlimited loading potential. I think it's a good idea, but you're probably going to get a little bit more on the um, – on the, on the squats there are typically like I I've overloaded or um, hit the limits on people with the, uh, Oh wait, dip belt squat. Dip belt. So are you talking about on a machine here, like a pit shark or a pit bull? I think they used to call it <clears throat> used to be available through rogue. In which case I fully agree. Sometimes though, some people will put a dip belt on with a kettlebell or a dumbbell and they're squatting on a couple of um, uh, benches or something. And typically I find that's a good thing to do, but they run out of room with that real fast uh, where, you know, you're getting so many plates on that sucker uh, and that dip belt that uh, it's still a pain in the neck to just get 135 pounds and so forth, which for most people with squatting is still pretty lightweight. So it depends kind of on the ways that you're going about it. Uh, I'm much more of a fan of using progressive technique with weighted stuff. So do hard stuff, do a hard technique. That way you don't need nearly as much weight. Uh, with the good morning and the plates and stuff, I would say though, make sure that you're using a good way to get out of it quick. So one of the reasons why I don't do good mornings with people is that it has a very high liability to it because once you hinge forward, if you're having trouble extending yourself back up, you're now in a position where you have to hurt yourself to get out of that position. Either you're gonna throw the barbell over to the back of your head or you're going to strain something going up. That's why I'm almost always using things like kettlebell or Romanian deadlifts and stuff. You want something where you just let go of the bar and get out. Um, be wary of any exercise that loads you in a compromised position that you cannot get out of. So with the uh, plate-loaded weight vest, uh, good morning, what you want to do is if you come down and you're like, I'm not so sure about this. I think I went a little too far. I think I'm going to strain my back. Just squat down bend your knees and just squat down on the floor. That's how you can get out of that position really quick and easy. Just always make sure that's in the back of your mind. Um, but that's, yeah, that's why I don't give people RDLs is just because it's one of those things that you just can't get out of a compromised position if you have to without hurting yourself. If you get to that point, hopefully you don't. Monsef saying, hey, Matt, old fan here. You don't look old. You look bright and young, my friend. You look great. Anyway, any solution for shoulder pain and dips? Thank you. Probably not enough stability in your back. Now that goes with assuming that you're healthy and to begin with, because always remember folks, when we have pain in a joint during an exercise, if we already have an injury in that area, like you could have done one dip one day and caused some strain in there. And now your technique is fine and everything is great, but now you've got an injury and we want to be aware of that. If I twist an ankle, you know, stepping off a curb or something, and then I'm like, okay, I have pain now when I walk. What am I doing wrong? You could do nothing wrong. You, everything could be fine. You just have an injury that you need to heal. So that could be very much the case here. But yeah, whenever we have shoulder pain that's chronic from dips and stuff, you're not using your back nearly enough. When you are on the dip bars, you should feel like it's almost as much of a back exercise as anything. Your lats should be lighting up like crazy, down and back, 
like so. If you're hunching up even a little bit, that's going to compromise the stability in your shoulders, potentially cause some of those issues. Abdullah Khan, how's it going? Hey, Matt. We are most, uh, why are most programs on a weekly basis? Can I do programs spread over two weeks and still gain size? Of course, yes. Week is a more of an arbitrary number. It's more about scheduling uh, for people than anything else. You know, we need to be able to consistently train whatever exercises we're doing. And usually people have an easier time consistently training when they schedule it around work and around school and around whatever other obligations they have, which are usually also scheduled around on a weekly basis. But yeah, there's nothing saying that it has to be weekly. I mean, I've known people who train legs. They're like, yeah, I train legs every eight days. You know, so it's Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday and so forth, just because they know they need that little bit more recovery. Or, you know, with my freestyle program, I don't have any kind of regular weekly training program. I just do what I can with what I've got on a regular basis. So, yeah, there's nothing that says you have to train on a weekly basis uh, or any sort of structure on seven days. Uh, you can do it however you want as long as you get the work in on a consistent basis. Dave is coming on. Say, Matt, what cut are you working on lately? Kata. Taekwondo, we call them patterns or tull, T-U-L kind of thing. And in uh, Taekwondo, or at least the uh, style of Taekwondo that I've been practicing since I was 10, uh, we have 24 patterns. Technically now it's 25. At one point in our history, we got rid of one and brought a new one in. But my school and several other schools, we did just do both of them sort of thing. So I, I practice all of my forms, kata, toll, whatever, uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, several years ago, actually, over a decade ago, I took out a calendar and I just wrote, you know, pattern number one, John G on Monday, pattern number two, Dungan, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I just went through the whole week, you know, and did that. And every day I've got three or four patterns that I do. And that's what I do every day. So I do all my patterns on a weekly basis. And right now at the current rank that I'm in, there's only one more that I have yet to learn. So I've got 24 out of the 25. I've almost collected the whole set, but out of those 24 that I'm allowed to learn, I know them all. And heaven heaven willing then november i'll test for my next rank then i'll be allowed to learn the last one and then i'll have them all in which case i can answer your question which ones am i working all of them <laughs> or at least all of the ones that are in taekwondo itf style <clears throat> avocado love coming on saying hey how long should i rest if you have uh, if you injure your forearm radialis muscle pain depends on the injury depends on the severity of it uh, so you've got to just listen to your body, work around the pain. Don't do things that hurt. Give it as much time as it needs. Could be a week, could be a month, could be several months. Uh, it's just uh, down to too many different factors. But do remember, my friend, that pain is something we experience at a certain level of damage. So when you start to heal, you'll get to a level of healing where you no longer have pain or very little pain. And people make the mistake of thinking if there's no pain, that means it's 100% and it's not. You just don't have enough damage to cause the pain. So you still want to allow things to heal to some degree. Uh, so that way you make sure it comes back because that's how people keep flip-flopping with an injury where it's like, oh, now I'm fine. And then they get re-injured again because, no, you weren't 100% yet. You were just uh, healed enough that you did not have pain anymore. Cristobal saying, which strength training exercise do you think are better for uh, boxing and power punching? Just basic push-ups. Basic push-ups, explosive push-ups, those are all very good. It's uh, one of those things that, uh, you know, again, when it comes to a general athletic movement, like throwing a punch, 90% of your proficiency and ability to throw that punch is going to come from punching. 
It's not going to come from strength training. Strength training is a supplement. Uh, strength training is to uh, athletic performance what a vitamin pill is to a healthy diet. It can be healthy, especially if it's shoring up weaknesses, but uh, it doesn't actually make you good at your sport. It makes you stronger at whatever you're doing, and you're hoping that there's going to be some carryover to the sport from doing that sort of thing. So the basic movement patterns of horizontal, you know, explosive uh, push-up variations, explosive push-ups, that's going to be the best way to go about it. Finness is coming on. Good to see you. Hey, Matt, what are good cues for a sport uh, style single arm kettlebell swing? Very good question. So the thing that I've always been more beneficial from is keep your, keep your lats not so much tight, but like compressed. So a lot of times when we're working with unilateral exercises, particularly with something of a posterior chain work like a swing, a lot of times we lose tension in our lats. So by keeping your lats compressed, like squeeze your spine with your lats, that's going to keep things much more tight and stable. And that also gives your hips a much better foundation that they can drive off of. So that way you're not elevating your shoulder too much. You're not getting internal rotation, which can also happen, especially under fatigue. The elevated shoulder, the protracted shoulder, you just pack the shoulders and squeeze your spine with your lats, both lats, because even though it is a single arm exercise, you want the whole back working in a very uniform way because otherwise you're going to get some sort of lateral twisting and compromise with that. Let's see, what other questions can we ask? Again, folks, thanks for your patience with my voice and everything here after uh, having my uh, cold all week. Man, I'm glad I'm talking to you though. Ali, 25 years old, good to know. Hey Matt, is there any chance doing calisthenics may help you find a wife? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Everyone knows that people who don't do calisthenics never get married. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. Well, it's all about making you a better person, my friend. Are you more confident? Do you stand straighter? Do you carry yourself well? So a lot of times in the dating world, when people suddenly find like it's weird where someone can be like, I haven't had any luck. And then suddenly they just start improving themselves in some way. They're like, ah, screw dating, screw you know, finding a girlfriend, I don't really care. I'm just going to work on me. I'm going to do what makes me happy. So they start a business, they get in shape, they go and travel the world, they do things for themselves. And it's not about making yourself better for the sake of someone else. It's making yourself better for you. And you love yourself and you have more respect for yourself and you have more uh, confidence in yourself. And that sort of thing is very attractive, not just to potential you know, girlfriends or lovers or whatever. It's just to everybody. Everybody gets gravitated towards individuals like that. And if you can get that with calisthenics, certainly won't hurt. Toby saying, do you have any suggestions for someone with hypermobility syndrome who has a lot of joint pain, what to do with calisthenics? So always remember that our muscles protect our joints. The tension keeps us there. So you want to pay attention to if you're using any sort of ranges of motion where you're losing the tension in the muscle. So if you're doing a pull-up, <clears throat> excuse me, you come all the way down and then you get to that dead hang where you're just kind of dropping down and you're hanging by your ligaments. Not that the ligaments can't handle that stress. They more than certainly can, but you just don't have any of that supportive muscle tension. So that's why I often refer to it not so much as range of motion, but range of tension. So work within your range of tension that you can use, keeping your muscles tight and engaged. And you should be able to feel that. So work within your range of tension, not your range of motion, because you're going to have a range of motion where you're no longer going to have as much supportive tension. And that's when you get into trouble. Jam in the making saying, hey, Matt, I live with my Arab parents and in culture, uh, you kind of eat 
what's the food today? And usually it's heavy calories and prepping your own food. Everyone thinks you're uh, going mental. What's the move? I don't see a problem with this in all honesty. Um, kind of eat food. What's the food today? Like the catch of the day. In other words, like your daily food, it's usually heavy calories. Good. Then you can just regulate your caloric intake by how much you eat. Prepping your own food. Good. Good. I don't, I don't, I'm sorry, but I don't see a problem with this. I don't understand what, can you elaborate, please, uh, champ in the making, let me know what your challenge is. Uh, Cause all this stuff seems good to me. <laughs> seems like a really good, I, boy, we'd be so lucky if we had that sort of thing, especially the making your own food thing. That would be uh, one of those things that's uh, very much beneficial, making your own food. Christopher saying, what's your opinion on overtraining? It's kind of overrated for you or is it something uh, to fear of? Don't, don't fear it too much. Yes, overtraining is something that does exist. <clears throat> and yes, it is something that should be addressed. I've done it several times throughout my training career, especially when I was a bike racer in college. Uh, and it usually happens a lot more when there's some sort of a demand or a program that we're following that forces us to exercise well beyond our limits. And by limits, I mean social limits and physiological limits. Like, okay, I just woke up this morning and it is legitimately a struggle for me to get out of bed. And this set, set of stairs is might as well be Mount Everest that I'm climbing up. It's like 10 stairs and it feels like hell going up it. But I know also later today, I'm going to get on my bike and ride 80 miles. You know, that's overtraining sort of thing. I get questions sometimes from people who are like, well, the program says to do three sets I think I kind of want to do four. Is that going to overtrain? No, it's not going to overtrain you. Trust me. You've got to do so much work in order to overtrain. It's ridiculous. And most people never probably will because it takes a gun to the head kind of mentality to do that amount of work. Nevertheless, I'm not a big fan of driving yourself into the ground. You know, and again, my adaptive training style is usually like, dude, if you're really tired and exhausted, skip a day, two days, three days, you know, and usually this keeps me from really overexerting myself as I sit down here with a bad cold and cough because I know I overexerted myself. I woke up last Sunday feeling kind of really off and I was like, I'm probably going to feel better if I go for a bike ride. And I did, but I knew I was going to pay for it. And boy, oh boy, have I ever all week long. So you could argue that I did too much there. Now, was that technically overtraining? No, not really. You know, because that was more of an acute response. That was just over a weekend. Overtraining is something that typically builds up over many weeks, several months. In other words, I mean, I've known bike racers who are truly overtraining. And it's like, yeah, you've been doing too much for the past three years kind of thing. So it's not something that's going to happen too acutely. If you're tired, rest. You know, and again, adaptive training is great for that. It's like, if you're really tired, skip a workout. Just take it easy. Don't go too hard just because you're tired. The body has really good ways of self-regulating stuff, which is why <clears throat> true overtraining is something that usually has, is something that we experience where our hand is forced, usually by an external uh, source. We generally don't have enough motivation, intrinsic motivation from ourselves to make that happen. So yeah, it is real. You may need to be concerned about it in certain circumstances, but for the most part, I wouldn't worry too much about it. If you're tired, rest. Basic line. Oliver DT saying, hey, Matt, what do you think is the best way of combining running with calisthenics? Calisthenics is my primary training. I want to supplement with running. Yeah, run. Yeah, run however you like. You know, a couple times a week, a couple miles and stuff like that. Get a couch to 5K program and stuff. 
I would say just get running, go for it, and then listen to your body. <clears throat> you know, if you do legs on Wednesday and you have a hard time running well on Thursday, well, put the runs on Friday or the leg training on Tuesday. Adjust and modify as you see fit to make the two work. But right now, I would say just do it however you like, and you're probably going to find how it fits in naturally through your own experience. It depends on how much you're running and stuff, of course. Don't worry too much about how exactly to do it. Let your body tell you what is too much. Robbie's saying, hey, Matt, a PT friend of mine is trying to convince me to buy a Theragun massager for exercise prep recovery. Do you have any experience with these? Any recommendations? I get questions all the time. Companies want to give me a Theragun to review on the YouTube channel. I had one again this week, and I usually turn them down. Why? I honestly don't believe they do much of anything. <clears throat> and in some cases, for some people, it can be very detrimental because if you've got something that's really tight and, and contracted, and then you're essentially hitting that muscle, literally abusing it, saying loosen the F up, <clears throat> that's kind of like your tight muscle and you're trying to force it to stretch. I think they're good therapy for feeling good. You know, I think they're one of those things that can be good at releasing tension, but always remember that we need to be more mindful of why the tension is there in the first place. Nobody has a tight IT band because of a lack of a Theragun or a tight upper back because of a lack of a massage gun or something along that area. If you've got an area that is chronically tight, it's best to ask why is there tension there? And as I was alluding to earlier, we usually hold tension in some parts of our body because some other part of our body is not doing its job. I don't think they're necessarily bad unless you're trying to literally hit a muscle that doesn't want to be hit. So we do need to be mindful of that. And they can be good. I was at a party last year and, uh, you know, we're all, everybody there, we're watching UFC kind of thing. And we're all martial artists. We're all at the gym. We're all working out and stuff. <clears throat> and my friend had a little massage there again, and we we're passing it around like it was a bong, like it's dude, there again, take a hit, pass it down kind of thing. And we're all just like, oh man, that feels so good on my hip. Oh yeah, I hit my upper back and everything. We're all just laying there enjoying the experience. So if you get in nothing else other than that, I think it's a good thing. You know, it, it's like, oh, it just feels so good on my back after a day of skiing, moguls, go for it. You know, for that reason alone, it's good. Just be mindful that it's not really that much of a solution to a problem that probably has a different source to it. And it's probably a better way to go to say, okay, so why the heck is my lower back so tight after you know a day of skiing? Or why is my upper back so tight all the time? That's probably gonna lead you to a better answer than we'll just massage it uh, a while. Leroy the man saying, hey Matt, remember uh, last year's live stream, I said my goal is to squat 405, Still stuck at 340. My deadlift went from 330 to 463. Well, that's certainly impressive. My accessories uh, are uh, glued ham developer. Good mornings. No extra quad work. Do I have a weak bracing uh, and quads? Probably somewhere. Yeah. Um, what I would do is take a look more at what your actual squat is like. If I had to put money on it, I would say that you're slightly overloading on those squats and either your tension control and your range of motion is getting compromised somewhere. Because always remember, whenever we want to make a quantifiable improvement in either reps or weight, we need to improve how well we're moving the reps and the weight we currently have. So something is definitely still needing to be addressed in your squat. That much is clear. Could be glute drive, could be quads. 
maybe, you know, hit the leg extension machine or some sissy squats for that. Um, maybe a little bit more back tension during the squat to give you some more stability. Remember, you're only as strong as you are stable. So there could be some instability somewhere. Could be a hip instability issue somewhere as well. Lateral hip, maybe an adductor, like your adductor magnus may not be, although it's probably not the case if your deadlift has gone up like crazy. Um, yeah, I would look more in the quads. Hit that leg extension machine for a few weeks. See what happens. Look at, uh, you know, pause squatting. Box squatting could be a good way to go about it too. Could be just a simple case of I just need a lot more weight on the bar and get my body used to the extra weight for a squatting motion. So try maybe some box squatting uh, for a few weeks. See what that does as well. Keep me updated on your progress, but congrats on that deadlift. That's impressive. Yakar is saying, what would be a better approach to increase reps in a given exercise? Perform the exercise twice a week, five sets, three times a week, uh, three or four sets. Again, uh, neither, uh, because when we're trying to improve our how much we can do, we need to improve the quality first. So if you're getting a little bit more practice, that could help. But if the volume you're getting throughout the week, uh, we may be splitting hairs here. There could be a benefit one way or the other, but I would bet not enough to really matter very much. What I would do instead is, uh, let's see, do you have five sets three times a week? So, no, you didn't mention the repetitions. So I would practice uh, improving tension control, stability, and range of motion. Those are the three things that I would look at for whatever that exercise is. Focus on getting more range of motion, better tension control of the muscles associated with the exercise so that they are engaged throughout the entire range of motion, again, range of tension. And if need be, uh, practice a regressed version of that exercise or a lighter weight so that way you can get some more volume and practice for that range of motion, for that tension control, and for uh, that stability. That's what I would do. Remember, we can only do uh, as much as the quality of our technique will allow. Sad, uh, S-A-A-D, Saad, Saad, I think maybe you're pronouncing that. Uh, saying, hey, man, I think you have been uh, shadow banned on YouTube. You have been consistent for over a decade, but your channel's growth doesn't add up. Yeah, well, that's usually what happens on YouTube, you know, that with sort of, sort of things. Like, you know, we, we see success uh, everywhere we go in fitness and on YouTube and stuff. And, you know, we see success from certain individuals who have, you know, millions of subscribers or someone who's got, you know, fantastic results in the gym and stuff. But always remember that success is extremely rare in uh, the world today. I mean, I've got over 100,000 subscribers. I think I was at a YouTube conference one time and, you know, they're like, okay, everybody with a YouTube channel, stand up. And like almost everybody stands up. Okay. If you've got over a hundred subscribers, stay standing. A couple of people sit down and they kept going and going and going. So I was in this big, huge conference room. There were like 300 people there. And when they got to 50,000 subscribers, which is what I had at the time, I, me and two other people were still standing out of like 300. So we look at, sometimes we look at like, well, this guy's got over a million. Isn't that kind of a standard? It's like, no, not at all. I think the average YouTube subscriber has something like 800 subscribers. So it's the same thing with, with fitness. We get really diluted by what we see on social media. People say, I can only do three sets of eight pull-ups. You know, why am I so weak? We're like weak, less than 5% of the population could probably do that. You know, that is huge. We get very diluted by what success is because the top 1% of 1% of 1% of success in any field gets all the attention. So they're everywhere. And because that fills our attention, we think that's normal. That's the standard. That's average because it's everywhere. When in reality, 
you could take a thousand people and you probably still wouldn't get anybody with even half that success. It's the same thing on YouTube. You know, I've got a hundred thousand subscribers. That is by far and away, far more than the average YouTuber has. Now, when you look at like, you know, fitness facts and you know, hybrid calisthenics and stuff, you know, guys who have much more than that, it looks like I'm not doing as well. But the fact of the matter is I am, uh, I am. And it's always, you know, you're running your own race. So who knows, maybe someday I could post something and it blows up and, you know, I cross the million uh, subscriber threshold or not. But to me, success has always been measured by how many people I can help. And if I can just help one more person, well, then that's that's successful in my my luck. Daniel Roused saying, hey, Matt, do you factor in direct arm work? Yes, absolutely. So grand style calisthenics and suspension calisthenics. Where is it? These are both programs that use direct arm work on suspension straps. And I was using suspension straps for direct arm work even back in the day when I was lifting weights. Why? Because it's really, really effective. And it's also incredibly satisfying. So yeah, I like to do it as a finisher. Sometimes it's just good to get a pump in the biceps and the triceps as well. It feels amazing. Love it. Joseph Bello. Good to see you, Joseph. Uh, hello, Matt. When I do pike push-ups, I always feel it in my shoulders. Should I have their arm in closer to me or a slight angle? Should I go between my hands or slightly forward? So yeah, you should feel it in your shoulders, but I'm assuming maybe you mean the shoulder joint. It is a shoulder exercise after all. But yeah, bring your head in front of your hands when you come down. You know, with push-ups, we want to fundamentally our shoulders go in front of our hands at the bottom of a push-up. Pike push-ups, same thing. It's a push-up. So bring yourself in front of your hands slightly at the bottom. It will be more uh, advantageous for your joints and disadvantageous for your muscles, making it more effective. Raphael, good to see you. I just found your channel. Welcome, my friend. Give real info and make it down to earth. Thanks, man. Thank you very much for commenting. I really do appreciate that. Goes on to say... How do I feel about row splits? Can it work? Absolutely. Always remember, my friends, you can work out any way that you like. You can train whatever split you like. You can do full body. You can do upper, lower. You can do push-pull. You can do push-pull squat or push-pull legs, as some people call it. You know, you can, you can mix and match and split up your training however you like, whatever works best for you. The only thing that really matters is can you just get in the work, right? I do my pull-ups. Does it matter if it's on a bro split or full body or whatever? No. You know, you may prefer one or the other. It's like if I have a dedicated back day, I feel like I can really get the pull-ups done. Great. Then there's your answer right there. Can you get the work in? And how well can you do the work, basically? And if you find a particular approach or style allows you to consistently get the work in and do it better, then that's your approach for you. But if there's a style out there, you're like, I just can't stick to this and I'm not doing it as well, well, then it's just not for you. Because can you just get it done? Can you get it in? That's really what's most important. Oh boy, I am fading here, folks. I'll try to get to the last couple of questions here real quick. Owen's saying, hey Matt, what are your current thoughts on neck training? Do you do it regularly? If so, how? Well, yes and no. I don't do any real hard direct neck training, largely because calisthenics, because of its orientation and gravity changing, your neck gets a pretty good workout anyway. Uh, I do have a couple of videos on neck training on the channel if you want to check those out. For some of those, they're all isometric, which is typically a lot safer for the neck. But um, yeah, I, I mean, a strong, sexy neck is a good thing to have. I've gotten compliments on my neck before. It's a good feeling. Neck, forearms, and calves. Those are things that just people notice. So it, I'm certainly a big fan of getting that neck work in uh, if you feel like your current training is not sufficient for it. MLG saying, what do you, when I do uh, volume pull-ups, 
with body weight versus volume uh, pull-ups with bands for extra reps. I see better progress with just body weight. Is there a reason for this? Probably just because you're getting a little bit more stronger to it. Um, your technique could be better. There's a number of reasons it could be uh, working for you. Um, I would hazard to say that you're just simply putting more into it for whatever reason. Mentally, you're going to a better place when you're just with the body weight. The band is somehow inhibiting your ability to really push yourself some way, shape, or form. I mean, obviously, the band is making it easier, uh, which is why you can get more volume. But always remember that volume is an important factor, but it's certainly not the one sole determining factor. You know, a lot of times people, have, you know, there were some studies several years ago where it's like people who did more volume built more muscle. And suddenly everybody's doing like German volume training, tons of volume, and they're like, volume's the one thing that determines your muscle growth. No, it's not. Those studies did not say that. Those studies just simply said that volume is a factor for muscle growth, of which there are many factors for muscle growth. That would be a good topic for next week's podcast, don't you think? All the factors that we need to kind of consider for muscle growth and building ourselves up. Maybe I will do that. Uh, DM me on uh, Red Delta Project on Instagram if you think that's a good idea and anything that you would like me to address. But uh, yeah, volume is important. But if you're getting that so-called junk volume and you're not really pushing yourself and kind of going through the motions, that may be compromising you. Christopher is following up again saying, so in the case of overweight overtraining, can exercising every day for GPP, general physical preparedness, is a good idea for strength training uh, recovery. Well, remember that you're going to recover through movement, not necessarily through uh, strength training. So you just need movement of any kind, you know, some light stretching, yoga, band work, whatever. Uh, if you're working your muscles, you're just working your muscles again. But yeah, you can do anything every day. Uh, hell, there are guys out there run marathons every single day. Depends more on your level conditioning though. Always remember my friends, you do not need to recover from exercise. You need to recover from stress and fatigue. So it depends on how much stress and fatigue you're getting from your workouts. Oops, got that one, sorry. Grand Rapids, hey, it's good to see you as always. Is there any way to get the biceps, big as they can be, using light weights? And how much weight you think is light for this? What's the technique for this? So remember, it's never about weight. You know, when, when we're using strength training, we're trying to condition a muscle. Uh, it's never about weight. It's about tension, okay? How much tension is in the muscle? And sometimes there are programs out there where people will use a lighter weight, but they'll put more tension in the muscle. Either they're just concentrating on it more, their technique is improving, whatever. So you don't want to think too much about weight or even reps to a degree. It's time and tension. Fundamentally, that's what muscles understand is how much tension is in the muscle, how long is it there for? So sometimes if you're using a different method, like lighter weight or whatever, but you're actually able to get more tension in the muscle, then yeah, it's going to get bigger and stronger. Uh, MLG is, uh, thank you very much for the super sticker. Certainly appreciate that. Chairman, the making good with clarification. I meant in our culture, the family prepares the food and you kind of have to eat it. You know, good, good. If you try prepping your own food and not eat theirs, it's not that acceptable culturally. Uh, think, uh, they'd think you gone crazy. Yeah. You know, I mean, I grew up in a household where my parents were like, you know, you eat what's on your plate kind of thing. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, especially if you're coming from a very traditional background, whatever they're preparing is probably a hell of a lot better than anything else out there anyway, because a lot of ethnic traditional foods are some of the healthiest, best foods you could possibly consume for yourself. 
my theory has long been that traditional ethnic foods were developed at a time in human history where we had enough food resources to produce a variety of foods and a good quantity of foods. So we weren't just eating nothing but carrots for a month and a half. But at the same time, resources were short enough that we had to make very good um, use of the foods we had available. So we figured out meals and combinations and stuff to really boost up the nutritional and health value of what we were eating. So if you're in a very traditional household, you're eating traditional ethnic foods from your culture, I think you're probably eating better than 90% of the people in this country here. Uh, so I, I would probably say it's not too bad, big a deal. Uh, a lot of times diets, though, will tell you it's bad. You know, so many diets out there are like, oh, it's bad if you're eating this food or if you're eating sugar or if you're eating this fruit or if you're eating meat or whatever. That's personal preference, you know, but it's not the basis for a healthy diet. diet. Most dietary recommendations out there about what you shouldn't be eating are not based on health and fitness. They're based on usually more of an arbitrary number or something. If people have been healthy and fit eating certain foods for generations and suddenly a diet comes out saying they shouldn't be eating this way, I don't have a whole lot of faith in that type of advice. Wish I had known that back in the day. A couple last ones. While such wizard is always good to see you. Hey, Matt, how many uh, views do you get every week? I don't know. Again, I'm not a big numbers guy. I don't really check very much. But like we were saying earlier about, uh, you know, average versus success, the average YouTube video from a stat I just heard one time, who knows, you know, the average YouTube video gets around 100 video, uh, views. 90% or something like 90% of YouTube videos uploaded do not reach a thousand views. And my videos will reach one to 2000 views like clockwork. The better ones will reach about 5,000 views. And this is within a week's time. Sometimes I'll get up near 10,000 views within a, a few weeks. So again, that tells me that I'm doing far greater than 90% of the YouTubers out there. Just because I can upload a video and I get over 2,000 views within a few days, it's a lot better than the majority of people. Ali's saying, hope you feel better, Matt. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Last couple of questions here to wrap up. Uh, Gio saying, hey, Matt, what are your thoughts on balancing pull-ups and rows in a week training schedule? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, they're the same basic pull chain exercises. So I would say focus on the one that you feel is more in alignment with your goals. But uh, I usually focus more on pull-ups just because they kind of usually a heavier version, although there's certainly progressive rows that you can practice. And I will usually do about uh, two thirds pull-ups, one thirds rows, but that's just more on my personal preference. Christopher saying, thanks for the answers. Channel is a good source of information for calisthenics and general fitness. Thank you very much. Oh, here's a good one here. Certified hustler is saying, rows are hurting my groin. So pay attention to hernia, my friend. Watch out for that. If you are we're using too much force in your lumbar region. Are your glutes and your hamstrings engaged? Remember the gluteal muscle comes underneath your pubic bone to a certain degree. So make sure your hamstrings are also working as well. Because if it's all holding your hips up because of your glutes, you may not have enough going on with your hamstrings. Okay, folks, my voice is fading fast. Thank you very much for having the perseverance to listen to me talk for this whole time. I certainly do appreciate it again. RDP library helps support channel like share the video, leave your five star reviews on your podcasting uh, platform. If you're listening to this as well, and it's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. And yeah, next week 
Let's talk about the principal things to pay attention to for building muscle with calisthenics and otherwise. We'll talk about that next week on next week's episode. You can get the audio recasts on these on your local podcast directories, as well as it's always up and readily available on the RDP YouTube channel as well. Thank you very much, folks. I'll talk to you next week. So then be fit and live free.